Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Increase the days of the king's life, his years for many generations. May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. Then will I ever sing praise to your name and fulfill my vows day after day. You may be seated. Well, as the, uh, as the old joke says, there are three kinds of people in the world, those who can count and those who can't. There, thank you. <laughs> um, there, there are three kinds of people in the world, and there are three kinds of people uh, in this room right now. There are those who have faced a crisis, those who are in the midst of a crisis, and those who will be in crisis. Uh, two weeks ago today, this church in Tanzania was bombed. Two people died. 44 people were seriously injured. Okay, you can read about that on the back of today's bulletin. Some of you remember a time when you were literally fleeing for your lives. Some not knowing if you'd ever see your families again. And some knowing that you would not, in fact, see your families again. Some of you have lost, have lost a dear one suddenly or watching them decline slowly toward death. Some of you are watching that right now. Some of you parents were painfully awakened to the fact that your healthy baby was not so healthy. Some of you have ongoing health issues. Other crises might seem a little bit more mundane but are no less crises. I'm starting university. Will I make it? I'm finished university, what now? I'm single and I wish I wasn't. I'm married and I wish I wasn't. I'm getting married and I'm scared. We're having a baby, that brings real challenges. We're not having a baby, that hurts. I want to quit my job, I wish I could find a job. Okay? Some of you, for any one of a hundred reasons, are scared today. Crisis is a part of life, part of everybody's life question is, what do we do with crisis? This year is our church's 60th anniversary, and so we've just begun a series of messages um, based around the Psalm 60s, 61 through 69. Today we're at Psalm 61. And this psalm, as do many other psalms, see the psalm writer, David often, in crisis. David is crying out to God. David is begging God to listen and to preserve his life and his kingship. Okay, we're not sure when David wrote the psalm. Uh, in Psalm 60, which we considered a couple weeks ago, we saw David fighting wars at the frontiers of his kingdom. Okay, I don't know if this is the same situation that Psalm 61 arises from. He is crying from the ends of the earth. 
In Psalm 60, he's pleading with God to leave David and his armies to the rocky fortress of the territory of Edom. And in Psalm 61, he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Um, others think maybe he's writing this out of his anguish in the midst of Absalom, his son's rebellion. Prolong the life of the king. May he be enthroned forever before God. But no matter the situation in which this psalm was written, David's crisis is threatening to overwhelm him. The English root word, whelm, includes the idea of water, to be wet. And to be overwhelmed carries with it the picture of drowning. And whatever is happening to David, he is a drowning man and he is not sure that he can keep his head above water. And this psalm is David's yelling for a lifeline. Have you ever felt overwhelmed? This circumstance is too much. I'm so tired of treading water. I'm this close to sinking below the surface. I have no strength anymore. Maybe it's a temptation you've caved into once again. Maybe it's yet another argument. Maybe it's all the commitments that you've made and you know that you're heading for a crash. Guilt, fear, continual spiritual disappointment, bullying, peer pressure, depression, work, school, parenting, life. I just can't do this anymore. We've all been there or are there or will be there. So what do we do? What does David do? Well, first he cries out. From the ends of the earth, he turns toward Jerusalem and the temple where the presence of God hovers over the Ark of the Covenant, and he frantically waves his arms and shouts, God, God, over here, please hear me, listen to my prayer. I call to you. I'm drowning here, and my heart is faint. Okay, we've got to cry out. Your heart is faint. What else can you do? You've already done everything that you can do, and it has not brought relief. If it had brought relief, we wouldn't be overwhelmed. But if we are overwhelmed, we have no recourse but to cry out to God. It is right to cry out to God. Not only are we allowed to cry out to God, we are explicitly instructed to cry out to God on the basis of and with the promise of God's care. Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. 1 Peter 5, Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares to you. These are instructions. They don't give permission. We are told to do these things. And so we cry out. You cry for a change in your circumstances. Job, health, resolution to a relationship, and so on. Whatever circumstance you're overwhelmed by. But it is to God that we cry. So answer this. If you cry out in your time of need, and if the one that you cry to has such a love for you that you can hardly imagine it, and if that one has the ability to act in your behalf, what do you think he will do? He will respond. 
he will act. He will. He may not act in the way that you think he should. He may change your circumstance. He may change you. He may change you so that you no longer see your circumstance as a crisis. Maybe he'll just give you strength to endure, even though you don't feel strong in the moment. Maybe he will carry you in such a way that though it continues to feel like a crisis, he sees you through, even though you feel like you're barely making it. I don't know. And yes, he may race in on his great white stallion, sweep you into his arms and carry you to safety. We don't know, but he does act. He always does. You might not see it. You may not understand his action, but he will always act in every circumstance and for your good. Do you believe that? Is it hard to believe that? Well, your weakness in believing it does not make it any less true. God does not wait for that critical moment when you conjure up enough, enough faith, as if there is a faith meter that you have to reach before he will act. You cry out, he acts. That's what he does. Sure, Ken, but I have been crying out. God is not answering. He's silent, and here I am almost drowning. I don't want to sound pat or to brush that off, but the word almost is important. You have not yet drowned. It's hard, but he will not let you drown. And maybe the fact you are barely staying afloat but are not being drowned, maybe that is sometimes God's response. David often cried out in the Psalms and then cried out again, wondering why God has not responded to his cries. But he never stopped crying out. He would not release his grip on God. So please don't stop crying out. It is the first and the last and the, the best thing that we can do in any overwhelming crisis. Let me declare to you in no uncertain terms today that God acts for those who are his and that simply to cry out no matter how weakly is enough. No matter your circumstances on this day, he is at work with your good in his mind. He himself is good, and he can be trusted. So we must cry out. In his crying in Psalm 61, David appeals to two things. He appeals to God's prior help, and he appeals to God's desire for praise. God has given David prior help. There have been many previous occasions where David had experienced God's deliverance. God had often responded to David's pleas. Psalm 61, verse 3, For you, O God, have been my refuge. Whenever I have fled to you, I have been secure. When King Saul was hunting David, when David saved the city of Keilah from the Philistines, when the Amalekites carried off the families of David's men and David's own family, the rebellion of Absalom. In all of these, the scripture shows us that David cried for help, for wisdom, for deliverance. And many of the Psalms celebrate God's constant faithfulness. God had consistently given help to David. And now David appeals to God for present help. 
Polycarp was the bishop of the city of Smyrna, arrested in the second century and brought to trial in Rome because of his worship of Jesus. And when standing before the Roman proconsul and in danger of being thrown to the beast of the Roman circus, he was given one more opportunity to burn incense to Caesar and to renounce Jesus and thus to win his freedom. Take the oath to Caesar and curse Christ and I shall release you, he was told. And Polycarp's response was this. Eighty-six years I have served him and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp looked back on a lifetime of God's faithfulness and went to his death at the stake, burn, trusting in God's providence, even in his own martyrdom. Even in death, he fled to God for refuge. Did God save him from death? Well, not in the ordinary sense. But he was delivered. God removed the fear of death so that he no longer saw it as a crisis. And Polycarp not only faced death then unafraid, but he faced it in a manner that made a heavy and moving impression on those who were watching. Not changing the circumstance, he changed Polycarp and so came to his age. What do we do when life deals us a crushing blow? We lift our eyes from the immediate and we consider God's past faithfulness. Instead of fixation on the present, we look behind us to God's faithfulness along the way. We see his fingerprints on our lives so far, and we are reminded then that his hands are here now, and we trust him. There's been many times over the years when I have wondered about my own future, even before the last year and a half, and I've replayed in my mind God's prior activity in my life. And I can see the things in which God has brought me to the place where I am today. Born in a church going home where I became very familiar with the content of the Bible. My move at 19 from Ontario to Edmonton and there to Emmanuel Community Church. Where I was grabbed onto by God and discipled. My decision to go to college and after one year to make the switch to North American Baptist College where God called me to ministry. The internship at a church in Manitoba by which in a series of connections I would meet a woman from BC whom I would marry. Seminary, serving for short times in various churches. And in all of these things I can see absolutely clearly the activity of God that has led me to this place, to this church, at this moment in my life. And because I can see that so clearly, I know that I can trust him for what I cannot see. And for me then, I know that what is happening right now is part of what is coming next. And will be a demonstration of God's goodness. I don't say that from pure faith. Trusting God despite what I see, I trust God precisely because of what I have seen. I have evidence of God's faithfulness. I see his faithfulness clearly, and so I am confident in his present and future faithfulness. And maybe in your circumstance, which is so painful in the moment, God is at work in you, 
It may be at work in you to reveal himself to someone else. Maybe this isn't even about you for now. I know of an elderly lady who was in the hospital, and she was not a follower of Christ. And her, grand, her, uh, his, her grandson and his wife, who were followers of Christ, would visit her regularly. And sharing her room with a curtain in between was another lady, this one a committed Christian, as was her family. And when this family was visiting in the next room, they would talk naturally and openly about Jesus because that's who they were. And as the elderly lady heard them talk, her heart was changed. And when her grandkids then invited her to faith in Jesus and to be reconciled to God, she responded and did. She'd heard enough about Jesus and the gospel that she was ready now to come to him. And God was at work in painful circumstances. Now, why was her roommate in the hospital? She probably didn't want to be there. Maybe she even prayed, cried out for her health and therefore her release from the hospital. And maybe God has you in your circumstances to change, to work in the life of somebody else. That in your being overwhelmed, God is doing something great that you might not even know. When you find yourself in a painful place, cry out to God, but cry confidently in the knowledge that he is good as you consider his past faithfulness. So David cried out to God and he appealed to God's prior help. David also appeals to God's desire for his own praise, that he be worshipped, that he be glorified. Verses 6 to 8 of this psalm. Prolong the life of the king, David calls. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Lord, if you rescue me, then I can sing forever of your praises. But if not, how can I praise you? Psalm 6, for in death, no one remembers you. In Sheol, in the grave, who will give you praise? Psalm 30, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell you, tell of your faithfulness? David's assumption is that God's desire is for his own glory. And he's right. This desire is rooted in the reality that God is infinitely worthy to be glorified. For God's people to desire God's glory is appropriate. For us to worship him is just as right as to call a coin round. And God's desire that people glorify him arises not from any need on his part. God is not insecure. God does not need our affirmation. God's desire for praise arises from his commitment to what is good and what is right and what is true. It is objectively right that God be glorified. For me not to glorify God in all things is for me to step outside of reality and to live falsely. Let's say I ask one of my children 
who am I? And they say, Dad. And then I ask, do I love you? And I desire that they answer, yes, you do love me. And they might answer, no. They might say, I don't know if you love me or not. But the answer that I desire from them is, yes, Dad, you do love me. Now, why do I want to hear that answer? Do I want to hear it for my own affirmation? Do I want to hear it to relieve my own insecurity about where I stand with them? No, when I ask my child, do I love you, I desire them to say yes, because it is true. That's why I want them to say yes. No matter what they feel, the fact remains that yes, you love me is the only right answer. I do love them. And so to praise God is just plain right. Not to praise God is just plain wrong. And for God not to desire praise for himself would be for him to deny what is good and right and true, for him to deny reality. And this, of course, God cannot do. David understood this. He knew God well enough to know that praise is right and that God is right to desire it. If you don't come to my aid, O oh God, if you don't pull me out of this water, the praise from my lips will be cut off. Corpses don't have a lot to say about you. Dead people make lousy worship leaders. What did one dead person say to the other? Nothing. God, let your praise go on. Answer my cry and rescue me. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. David has already made his commitment to praise God. He's already made vows. That is, he has made formal commitments to worship God in the manner in which God in his law had laid out for him. As a pastor here for almost 13 years, I've had the privilege of performing weddings. Dwayne and Marla, Kevin and Dana, Daniel and Carmen, Jordan and Anna, Freddie and Debbie. All of you have stood before me and made vows to one another. You have vowed faithfulness, vows of unconditional love and respect. Attaching yourself to the other person and saying, nothing but death will stop me from keeping these vows. And David had done that before God. He had committed himself to the worship of and faithfulness to God. Other Psalms, you, your praise will always be on my lips. I will praise you forever. I will praise you as long as I live. And so on throughout the Psalms. In Psalm 61, hear my cry, O God, prolong the life of the king. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Even in his crisis, David wants God to receive praise from his own lips. And there is nothing in humanity, in history, or in your own life that matters more than the glory of God. It is the highest good. It is the most noble pursuit and desire of every human being. There is no greater desire that you could have. A few years back... My children were obsessed with learning about the solar system. Remember that? 
And most of you have heard me make reference to that before. The immensity of the universe is beyond our ability to even begin to think about imagining it. If we could travel at one million miles, uh, kilometers per hour, to travel from our sun to the next nearest star would take over 100 years. That's not true. It would take more than 100 years. It would take almost 5,000 years to get to the next nearest star. Then consider billions of stars in a galaxy and maybe billions of galaxies in an ever-expanding universe. One of the videos that came to our house uh, around that time, one scientist uh, talking about the attempt to find life out there somewhere said facetiously that considering the size of the universe, if there was no other life out there, it would be such a waste of space. But I've also heard somebody say, what if the universe was not created to be a place for life, but to display the glory of God? What does this cosmic artistry reveal about the artist? And that's exactly why the universe exists. It's not as a home for us. If it was just a home for us, a scientist would have been correct. And even our solar system would have been excessive. But the universe exists to reveal and display the glory of God. So there is no wasted space. The glory of God is why everything exists. It's why you exist. And so if in your life, your great desire is that God be glorified, then in everything that is a part of your life, crisis or otherwise, you will there too desire God's glory above all else, as David did. So I will praise you. What do we do in crisis? We desire that God be glorified. But the wonderful thing about God is that he never glorifies himself at somebody else's expense. It could not be. God is glorified when and because he comes to the aid of his people. Part of his glory is his love. And that this God who created the universe as a theater to display his glory, that this God loves you is in itself glorious. The universe cannot contain him. And so an expression of his glorious nature is his particular affection and care for you. For one person. And for his loving activity in your circumstances, however painfully bewildering they are. And God said this essentially to Job, paraphrase, but if I can be master of this physical creation, don't you think that I can be trusted with your own life? And it is this love of God that makes him act. Now, how can you know that he loves you? Is it the absence of crises? If God loved me, this wouldn't be happening. Do we know God loves us because of the gifts that he gives? Food, comfort, health, a home, relationships? No. A vast number of people are hungry, homeless, lonely, right here in Calgary. Does God love them? Yeah. 
So if our circumstances and our provision, while gifts of God's love, are not proof of his love, then how can we know that God loves us? And if we can't know for sure that he loves us, then how can we know that he has our good in his mind, and how can we know that he can be trusted? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Romans 5. This is how God demonstrated his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 2, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Husband, uh, Ephesians 5 again, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. 1 John 3, this is how we know what love is, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was manifested to us. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, that he loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Bible consistently pairs the love of God and the death of Jesus. God's love and the crucifixion are set side by side so many times. The supreme demonstration of God's love is the cross. By Jesus' death, God has rescued us from the crisis that dwarfs all other crises. The cross is the one great place where we see God's glory. And in the trying circumstances of our lives, even those that are so great we feel that we are being overwhelmed, we trust him for the lesser things because he has already done the greater thing. It does not mean that deliverance will happen in the way that we would usually understand it, but it does mean that we will not be ultimately destroyed by it. The road to eternal and perfect joy is a bumpy one, but our arrival is absolutely guaranteed. God does deliver. Romans 8, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And Job, in the midst of circumstances I can hardly understand, if understand at all, Job said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And Jesus, who felt forsaken on the cross, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So again, have you ever felt overwhelmed? This circumstance is too much. I'm so tired of treading water. I'm this close to sinking below the surface. I have no strength. Now, this message this morning may leave some unsatisfied. What we want to hear is that God will, sooner rather than later, lift us right out of crisis or end the crisis but the Bible does not give me permission to say that. Joseph was elevated from prison to the palace. Daniel was saved from the lion's den, yes. But the apostle James was beheaded. The prophet Jeremiah ended his life as a hostage in Egypt. Abel was murdered. We cannot say more than what the Bible says. 
But what the Bible does say is that if we can own these things, that it's surpassingly comforting because it surpasses circumstances. As the, as the song says, the waves, they don't seem so high from on top of them looking down. What do God's people do? We cry out to him. We trust him to do what is right and good because we have seen his past faithfulness. We remember that his glory is above other considerations and believe that his glory includes his best for us and that Jesus is the great answer to our greatest crisis, that Jesus is the supreme demonstration of God's radical commitment to act in our best interests, and that in Jesus, God's glory is revealed. And this is what we cling to. Because this, at the end of the day, is all that we need to know. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond to this and give us opportunity to think and reflect and maybe surrender whatever's going on in your own life and in your own heart. And we're going to sing some songs, and if you want to sing, sing. If you want to just listen and use these songs as prompts to prayer, then go ahead and do that. But we're going to lead now in uh, some songs together. <laughs>